Uh, we pray that God will open our hearts and minds to understand his word. Lord God, we ask now that you would open our hearts and minds to understand your word. Please, through your spirit, give us this understanding. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The place where Kathy and uh, I and our daughter Josephine live is called Wollongong. It's a beautiful little city, about 200,000 people, about an hour's drive south of Sydney. It's beautiful, it's prosperous, uh, people are just kind of happily getting on with life. And it shares things with Singapore. I've only been to Singapore once. Um, I may get invited back again sometime. Um, nice to, it's uh, like Singapore. Singapore is prosperous, full of people just getting on with life, a beautiful place, safe place. And yet Wollongong and Singapore have this in common. They are both war zones. There is a battle that rages there. And you know, the other thing they have in common is most people can't see it. It's like um, they're blind to what's actually going on. There is a battle there. It's a battle, the conflict is between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of the evil one and the kingdom of God. And the battle is on for the souls of humanity. It's a life and death struggle. And that struggle has been going on as long as humanity has existed for all of the time you know, that we've been on the planet. Uh, the battle is almost over now. It's been won, it's just being mopped up. The battle itself focuses down to one particular hot spot. Just a few short years that happened in places that we still, well, we can still visit as tourists if we want to. Mark shows us, or Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, I want to look today at Mark. Mark shows us what the hot point in that battle actually looked like. And if you've got your Bibles open, I hope you have, at Mark chapter 3, let's see what it is that uh, Mark shows us here about the two champions, the two great uh, generals, the champions of these two sides of the war. See, Mark chapter 3, verse 20, we're introduced to both the champions, the ones who lead either side. See, Mark chapter 3, verse 20, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, but they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. We have Jesus, and we have the other uh, champion, if you like, uh, here, referred to as Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Now, I'm about to um, uh, introduce uh, the devil. And I have six points, and I need to apologise. It really is just a huge download on you. I do apologise. I can't say the devil made me do it. I have to take full responsibility. Uh, and I have six things, and this is probably the, the hardest work of the whole week. And then after this talk, uh, the rest do get easier. Okay? Trust me. But here we go. And I finally worked out how I want to do this, and that is to introduce both um, champions... When it comes to the devil, or Beelzebub, uh, if you're taking notes, uh, it's not exactly a detailed outline I've given you in the book, but here's six points about the devil, his names, his origin, his power, his minions, 
if you like, or his henchmen, whatever you want to call it, his minions. Number five, his weapons. Number six, his future. And I'm just going to download it on you. Uh, do, do your best to hang on. Here we go. The name Beelzebub, uh, or uh, Baalzebub, different ways of spelling it, it's kind of a pun on the name of one of the false gods in the Old Testament. And it really means, as I said last night, uh, the Lord of the house, the master of the house, you know, uh, Lord of the house, the Lord of the flies, or even the Lord of dung, depending on how it was said. And it's identified with its derogatory name for the devil, or the prince of demons, as he's called here. In the New Testament, uh, the, word, or the name Satan is from a Hebrew word meaning adversary. Devil comes from a Greek word, diabolos, meaning accuser or slanderer. And in the New Testament, as far as I can see, the two names are used just interchangeably, the devil or Satan. Uh, in fact, the devil's actually called by quite a few different names. Um, Joy, can you just show us that... Um that first slide. In Revelation 12, there's five different titles that the devil is, is called by. Here we go. Um, Revelation 12, uh, verse 9. The great dragon, first name, was hurled down. That ancient serpent, second name, called the devil, third name, or Satan, fourth name, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and the angels with him. And then in verse 10, he's called the accuser of our brothers. So that's five names there in just a couple of verses. He's also called the God of this world, uh, the ruler of the kingdoms of the air. Um, in Ephesians 2 last night we saw the spirit that's now at work in the children of disobedience. And you'll see, just look down in Mark 3.27, Jesus calls him the strong man. Lots of, uh, lots of different names. Now the devil or Satan is mentioned in the Old Testament, but only briefly mentioned in Job chapters 1 and 2, in 1 Chronicles 21, in Zechariah 3, but not, not very much. He's there, oh and of course sorry, in Genesis 3, he's there, but we're not told a lot about him. Okay, second thing, his origin. Satan just turns up in Genesis 3. He appears in the form of the serpent, uh, the subtle deceiving serpent, and he tempts Adam and Eve. Uh, here's the thing, well, what happened? Where did he come from? What happened before the creation of the world? The answer is, the Bible says surprisingly little. You think, oh, no, wait a minute, it was about like he's Lucifer and the, the rebellion in heaven and the, uh, yeah, except the Bible, I don't think the Bible actually tells us that. A lot of what we believe, or a lot of what, anyway, the Western world believes about the devil and so on comes from a poem called Paradise Lost, written in the 17th century by a man called John Milton. And what Milton's done is take the few facts that we actually know and make up a great story, uh, 12, diff 12, um, 12 long chapters of the story of the rebellion of Satan and how it happened and his temptation about it. And, and it's kind of filled in the gaps but it's just creative writing. Now that's had a huge effect though on the way that kind of folklore sees the devil. There's also some things written in the intertestamental writings between the Old and the New Testament, some things written in these apocryphal books about the devil and so on. But not a lot said in the Bible. You think, but wait a minute, I thought Satan was um, Lucifer, he was the, the bright morning star, he was thrown out of heaven, all that. Mm, maybe, maybe. Now, are you still with me? I can see a few screensavers have gone on in people's heads. You, 
Just, if the, look, just look at the person beside you. If you get teddy bear eyes, just give them a little, okay? All right, okay. Now, what we need to do, I want to show you, and hang in there with me, this, my guess is you've never had a long Bible study on the devil because we don't want to give the devil central place, and I will try very hard not to this week, but we want to do the work. Most of what we know or kind of think we know about the devil um, comes from two Old Testament passages, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. I want you to turn there now. No more um, easy things on the PowerPoint. Can you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14? I'm doing it. You can do it. Isaiah 14, about the middle of the Old Testament. Okay, Isaiah 14. Now have a look, I'm going to read to you from verses um, 12 to 15. Verses 12 to 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You, have, um, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the, most, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now that certainly, um, but, but you have been brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Now that certainly sounds like, well, it's the devil claiming um, to be what God was and so to be as great as God and so was thrown out of heaven. Yeah, yes, but have a look at chapter 14, verse 3. Okay, and this is what I said, the Bible is not a bag of marbles. Do you remember? The Bible is a story. It's a book. I'm going to read it like a book. So look at 14, verse 3. On the day the Lord gives you relief, as he speaks to Israel and promises them relief and so on, on the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you will take up this taunt against who? The king of Babylon. That chapter, verse 14, is not obviously about the devil, it's about the king of Babylon. It's poetic language. Look at verses 16 and 17. Chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. Those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let its captives go home? Uh, is it about the devil? Well, it, it could be echo. It could be echoes of him, but it's off. Obviously, um, out front, it's about the king of Babylon and God's judgment on Babylon. Or have a look at Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel across to the right, two books after Jeremiah, or two or three books after Jeremiah. You've got Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28. And have a look at verses um, 13 to 17. I'm sorry, what am I doing wrong? But... Well done, okay. Is that better? Okay. You're good at this. <laughs> well done. Okay. Ezekiel 28, have a look at verse uh, 13. Right on. This is juicy stuff. You were in Eden, verse 13. The garden of God, every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold on the day you were created. They were prepared. 
You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and made a spectacle of you before the kings. That sounds like the devil, doesn't it? Except, look at verse 11. Remember, read it like a book. Look at verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord said. This is about the king of Tyre. Tyre was a trading nation in the Mediterranean, a bit north of, um, uh, of where Israel is. And it's about this king who got too big for his boots and I think it's poetic language. Is it about the devil? Well, it could, it could be echoed that way. Well, look at um, 28 verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man, not a God. And though you think you are wise as a God, etc. You see, I think it's poetic language about these two great kings who had pretensions of being like God and God throws them down. Um, or Revelation chapter 12. One, one last one that you've got to look up. You can do this. Revelation chapter 12. In the olden days before PowerPoint, we used to turn our Bibles all the time. Um, you can do it. You can do it. Um, Revelation chapter 12. And have a look. Uh, do you know what? It is on the screen. Here we go. Sorry. Sorry about that. Um, we'll just edit that out before that goes on the internet, all right? That bit, okay. All right, Revelation chapter 12. See, people say, oh, look, here is the great rebellion before creation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael and the angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. And he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent, the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Oh, that's got to be about the kind of pre-creation rebellion. Uh, I don't think so. When you read chapter 12, and you might like to read it yourself later on, the beginning of the chapter is all about the birth of Jesus and the people of God about to give birth, if you like, to the Messiah. And it's, it's all about Jesus defeating the devil through his birth, death, resurrection and ascension. And then immediately after that, it's the people of God defeating Satan through trust in the cross. So the war in heaven here is about Satan being thrown down from his position because of Jesus' death. And we'll see more of that tonight. It could, it, see, it could be the case, but it, once you come with that idea and then bring it to the Scriptures, that's what the Scriptures say, of course. If you just started with the Scriptures, the New Testament doesn't go back further than Genesis 3. Okay? You think, oh, that's different to what I thought. Yeah, that's different to what I thought before I started preparing these talks. Um, in, in 2 Peter 2, it'll be on the screen, 2 Peter 2, 4, thanks, Joy. Um, we've got the idea of the, the spirits that sinned. Right? For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dun uh, dungeons, held for judgment, that could be about a pre-fall, uh, sorry, a pre-creation um, fall, etc. Except when you go to 1 Peter 1, it talks about spirits held in prison because they did the wrong thing at the time of Noah. Okay. 
So it could be right. The whole thing about the, the, the pre-creation um, fall and so on and the bright morning, it could be right, but I don't think we can be absolutely sure. Isn't it interesting that the Bible doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know? Why? Because the Bible's interest in keep, God's interest in keeping us safe and telling us what we need to know for godliness and salvation. The New Testament doesn't go back past Genesis 3. Why is Satan fallen? Well, I think that the, the, the thing that keeps coming up again and again about Satan, if he's fallen, it's because of pride. See, in um, 1 Timothy 3.6, it'll be on the screen, we're told, don't appoint a new Christian to be an elder or a leader in the church. Why? Because the new convert, verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall under the condemnation incurred by the devil. And what we'll see this week, as we look about spiritual warfare and the devil's influence on people and so on, the issue of pride comes up again and again and again. You see, the devil is, is seductive and clever. We keep looking for the work of the devil in the wrong place. We keep looking for, you know, the head spin around, the green vomit, all that, ah, the voices, like all that kind of voice, that stuff. And when the real work of the devil is in pride, arrogance, and so on. Anyway, more of that will come to it. Okay, next we get to his power. The New Testament is clear that the devil has great power. Uh, he's called the dragon, the roaring lion, and so on. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, as I said again, there's no, there's no dualism in the Bible. It's not the good power versus the bad power and who will win and we have to pray the right way so God can act and in the, in the great arm wrestle who will win. No, God has allowed our world to be under the influence, under the power of the evil one. It is his judgment on us. But what you must not do is take the characteristics of God, if you like, the attributes of God and apply them to the devil. The Bible nowhere says that the devil is omnipresent being everywhere all the time, the way God is. The Bible nowhere says that the devil is omniscient, all-knowing. Nowhere. He's powerful, and you need to take him seriously, but he's not the same as God. His minions, the next one, his minions, his, uh, his henchmen. Uh, the devil, in Matthew 25, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus talks about the devil and his angels. And so we get uh, evil spirits, sometimes called demons. Uh, people like to uh, work out and try and work out how many are there. So quick calculation, someone said around the throne room of God in Daniel's vision there are 10,000 times 10,000. How many, you guys should know, 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million, well done, 100 million. In Revelation 12, the devil sweeps a third of the stars away with his tail. So that's um, one third, 30 million demons, someone's worked out. I, some people have too much time in their hands, I think. Um, what are we told? We're told that these things exist. How many? Who knows? There are seven things that the New Testament writers tell us about demons. And I want to tell you, I believe in them. I believe in the devil, I believe in evil spirits, demons, also, all that stuff, I believe. Seven things, here we go. One, um, uh, the demons work for Satan, Mark 3.22. The demons inhabited different places. They sometimes inhabited, uh, this is the second, sometimes inhabited water, Matthew 8.22. Sometimes inhabited desert places, Matthew 12.43. 
The fourth one is controversial, but the Bible says it again and again clearly, and that is behind idolatry, behind the idolatrous false gods that deceive the nations, stands the demons. I'll show you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 19, Do I mean then, that it be on the screen, do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Behind the idolatry are the demons. Or Deuteronomy 32, go back to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32 verse 16 will be on the screen. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons, this is Israel, sorry, right? when they walked away. Um, they sacrificed to demons which are not God. Gods they had not known, gods they recently, sorry, that recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. And if you want a disturbing one to look at later, Psalm 106, verses 37 and 38, say that the child sacrifice that was practised in the ancient world was actually done to gods who were truly demons. Fifth thing about, uh, about the demons, and that is they, they could actually speak through those that they controlled. Sixth thing, they caused physical suffering. Here's the thing to notice, when the evidence of demon possession or what, what the presenting problem with demon possession and so on in the Gospels is physical suffering. And seventh, the Christians in the New Testament, Christians need to be alert to false teachings and lies that the demons bring. Paul talks about... Um, and I'll cover this a, bit, a little more later on, the principalities and powers. Three different times in Ephesians, in Colossians and so on, talks about the principalities and powers or the powers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. That's his way of talking about uh, the evil spirits. I'll keep pushing on. The next one, his weapons. The great weapon of the devil is the lie. Listen, he, comes to, he comes to Eve in the garden and says to her, did God really say? And then he twists scripture. You will not surely die, he says, that the lie. The Lord Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44, John chapter 8, verse 44, you belong to your father the devil and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And the devil's aim is to destroy people is to take them from God, the source of life, and bring them to death. You see it in Genesis 3 and every time since then. How does he do that? Mostly, the most effective way, he blinds their minds to see who the Lord Jesus is. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan accuses people, stands before God and accuses us and points to our guilt, which gives him power as well. Satan sends false teachers. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, the Spirit clearly says that in the latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. 
Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. Notice, how do the demons teach? They teach through human agents who are liars. And Satan dresses up, it's important to remember this, Satan dresses up as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13 says, as Paul speaks about false teachers, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 and 14. So... It's worth understanding and remembering that today, isn't it? Who is it that's most likely to be working for the devil? Uh, the devil doesn't turn up in the red asbestos tracksuit with horns. What does he turn up with? Well, very often... I have this feeling I'm doing something wrong. Okay, well done, well done. What's it say? When the devil turns up, he will be, he'll appear to be an angel of light. Won't he? Uh, he'll be good and kind and nice and he'll be the voice of pure reason. He'll come presenting pluralism. Come on, every religion's the same ultimately. They're all leading to God and isn't that the angel of light thing to say today? Or it'll be the voice of liberalism that says we need to grow out of that simplistic faith and leave all that judgment stuff behind and, and so on. And you know, the devil does his best work through institutional church leaders. Really, it's, it's church leaders who do his best work today. Um, those with theological degrees. And like I keep saying, watch out for bishops. The devil does some of his best work through bishops. All right. As well as that, the devil can actually bring physical um, disasters. So uh, Job 1 and 2, and he can bring persecution, physical persecution. You see that in Revelation chapter 2. We'll come to that later on, and I'll actually get you to look at that in your Bible study groups. Okay. And sixthly, his future. The devil is a defeated enemy. His final place... Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur and there the beast and the false prophet had been where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever Satan will finally be completely destroyed Okay, so having just said uh, the, the power of the devil where he's called the dragon, uh, the lion, the strong man, there is one who is stronger. That's the good news. Uh, and we see it. Um, Jesus talks about him, uh, Jesus himself, being the stronger man. Now we're back to Mark. We have eventually got back to Mark 3, verse 23. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. Okay, He's just been accused of being in league with the devil. So he calls them and speaks to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and he's divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. What he's saying is, if the devil was fighting against himself, he'd be weak, he'd be powerless. But he's not. He's strong. And you can see that. The devil has control of these people. What is actually happening? It's not the devil in league with the devil. It's verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. Unless you're stronger, unless someone stronger comes and binds him and rescues people. 
Here's where, see, as, as God's Messiah arrives to destroy the work of the devil, that is why you get this hot spot in terms of, you know, the activity of the demons and the devil and so on. In the, it's, not, it's not evenly spread across the whole Bible. In the Old Testament, the devil is not obviously mentioned very often. In the New Testament, it does focus down to the Gospels, right, where the devil is truly at work against the Son of God. Now, here's some things I've learned. I'll put this to you, and I want you to think hard about this and see whether I'm right. People today want to talk about um, spiritual warfare, or particularly about deliverance ministries and so on, or um, power encounters. The best book that I've been able to find about this, the best book I've read about this and the, the power encounters, is by a man called David Powlinson, P-O-W-L-I-S-O-N. David Powlinson, he's a... Um, uh, a lecturer at Westminster Theological Seminary in the USA, in Pennsylvania. And it's called Power Encounters, Reclaiming Spiritual Warfare. It's very good. If you're confused about the whole idea of, you know, can Christians have demons and what about exorcisms and all of that kind of thing and should we be doing that in church and so on, it's brilliant. Right? David Powlinson. Now, here's the difficulty. I think it's out of print, but you'd still track it down on Amazon or, or somewhere. Okay? And what, what he's shown me is this. You've got, to, you've got to always look at what's really going on because the devil always is, is confusing. In the Gospels, Jesus confronts two different kinds of evil. He confronts what Powlinson calls situational evil. And that is, when things are out of shape, things are wrong, things are bad, um, they're not what they should be, but they're that like that because, as a consequence of sin. So because there's sin in our world, uh, things are a mess. And what he means by that is sickness, storms, hunger, um, and so on. And as Jesus confronts these things, which are situational evil, he uses his, command, his power of his command to bang, fix them. There's a storm threatening life, bang, it's fixed. The people who are hungry, hand out the food, he fixes it. Um, sickness, with a word, it's fixed. Now here's the thing, uh, with demon possession, the symptoms or what shows itself that someone has a demon or some kind of evil spirit is, is controlling them or inside them, they rec what shows is not sin, not sin, but sickness. They're sick. Uh, and, I, and I see it now, it's everywhere through the New Testament. When Jesus comes in contact, how do you know someone has some kind of evil spirit? They're sick. And even the Gospel writers put demon possession in the list of all the illnesses that are healed. So, Joy, let's see. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering from severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralysed, and he healed them. It's also, if you're taking notes, it's also in Luke 6.18, Luke 8.2, Luke 9.42. In Mark 9.25, um, Jesus heals a boy who's got an evil spirit. How do they know that? He's deaf and he's mute. Or Luke 7.21, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to those who were blind. Or one that really jumps out, Luke 13, verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years and she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. 
and then jump down. What did Jesus say? Um, and should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath? She's all crippled up. Uh, so... Jesus confronts these people who have some kind of evil spirit. And by the way, we're not told how the evil spirit enters them. We're not told it's through any particular sin that they've done or any particular sin that a relative had done or anything like that. Just, we, we're not told. Isn't it a temptation to want to fill in the gap about how it happened? No, no, no. Bible doesn't say. Don't fill the gap. We don't know. Now, Jesus meets these people. They're sick. This, these spirits are doing that. And Jesus says, you shut up, get out. Bang. That's how long it takes. There's no exorc there's no chanting, there's no ritual, there's no whatever. He's the boss. You shut up, get out, and it happens. And here's the other thing. When Jesus confronts the evil of sin, what does he do? It's very different, isn't it? When Jesus confronts the evil of sin in the human heart, he doesn't exorcise sin out of the person. He calls on them to repent. Right? Because people are responsible for their sin. We are responsible for what we do. We make choices and so on. So when Jesus confronts the Pharisees, the ones who ultimately killed him, what he doesn't do is exorcise the demon of pride or anger or jealousy out of them, does he? He says to them, repent, turn around, ask forgiveness. Now see, there's people today in the deliverance ministries, and as I said, there's a big spectrum. There are some people who are careful and thoughtful about this. Okay? People, I, have, I have friends who believe this, and I've told them I think they're wrong and they think I'm wrong. Okay, You've got to work out from the scriptures. So people who are thoughtful and careful, right through on the spectrum to people who are just crazy about this, just wacko. Okay. Um, what they say is, look, Jesus cast out demons, so we should ex uh, often, so we should expect to do this all the time. And Christians can have demons, and um, uh, that you know come in and bring sin and so on. Demons with the names of you know anger, lust, jealousy, that kind of thing. And so we should cast those out. First thing to say is this: Jesus did all sorts of acts of power that we don't expect to imitate and we're not told to imitate and no one does so for example uh, I haven't heard of anyone walking on the water raising the dead catching fish miraculously feeding 5,000 people with a cut lunch uh, um, or controlling the weather uh, it, it doesn't it, it, okay so here's the thing um, Jesus did all of these things therefore we should what Pray to him when we've got problems. He's the boss. Do, do you get it? It's, it's, and to say, Jesus did these exorcisms, therefore we should. It's not. When Jesus confronted demons that make people sick, he cast them out. Um, now, can people be possessed today? I can't see any reason from the Bible why that's not possible. I don't think Christians can be possessed or controlled. I'll say more about that later. But can someone be controlled by the devil? Yes. But I've got to say, um, uh, in Australia where I've worked, it's very, it's rare. I mean, the devil's everywhere. He's busy. He's having a field day down where I live. But it's not kind of, you know, the head spinning around the green vomit. It's people busy at Westfields ignoring God on their way to hell. That's, you know, uh, anyway, that's another story. Um, so it's possible, yes. Um, 
But when it comes to actually dealing with sin, the problem is believing the lie of the devil, not being possessed. And look at the way that Jesus responds to people in the idea of confronting sin. Here we go. So see, the deliverance ministry people say there's sin in your life, you've got to have some kind of demon cast out. It's not what Jesus does. So Jesus um, meets the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. He does not cast the demon of adultery out of her, does he? What's he do? He forgives her and tells her to sin no more. Or um, the Pharisees, does he cast out the demon of pride uh, and so on? No, he calls them to repentance. Or the woman at the well in John chapter 4, does he cast out the demon of um, uh, sleeping around from her? I can't think of a better name for that demon. I will just say, you know, the demon of, um, yeah, sleeping around? No. What's he do? He tells her the gospel. He tells her about himself and says, trust, trust me, believe in Jesus. Or Zacchaeus, does Zacchaeus have the demon of greed thrown out of him? No. Jesus tells him about himself. He calls Jesus Lord. He becomes a believer. So Jesus preaches the gospel to them, uh, believe in me and be forgiven. If you want to see what the normal Christian life looks like, remember I said the Bible is a book, you've got to read it. If you want to see what the normal Christian life looks like, you go to the letters, the epistles that Paul and Peter and James wrote and so on. And what we're told there is not to exorcise demons out of one another, it's just not there. Uh, what we're told is to be aware of the schemes of the devil, not to be deceived, put on the armour of God, and we'll get to that in talks um, 4, 5 and 6. Okay. See, setting people free from the power of the evil one is, all about, is the work of God's spirit. And that's what's going on in Mark chapter 3. Do you see, um, uh, the work of the devil is about seeing the truth. Sorry, the, the work of the devil is about hiding the truth from people. The work of God is about people seeing the truth. And that's why Jesus warns people, um, in, warns these religious leaders in verse 28. I tell you the truth, he says to them. See, these are the people who have just called him Beelzebub. And Jesus gives this warning. I tell you the truth, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Now, does that mean if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you know, you... you you know, you're doing some handyman work for your wife and hit your thumb with a hammer and you cuss and you say, Holy Spirit, right? You swear. That's it. You're gone. On your way to hell. No, it's not what he means. What, what's, what's happening here? These people have looked at the Son of God in action, rescuing people from the power of the evil one. They look at that. They look at the work of the Spirit of God rescuing people and they say, This is the devil. And Jesus saying, if you will not recognise the truth, if you want to call this the devil, there is, there is no forgiveness for you. It's not a one-off thing. The words there, they were saying, imperfect tense, they were continuing to say. If you continue to say this, if you don't change from this, there's no forgiveness. All right, now I'm about to go really quickly. Okay, even, um, see, here's the thing. We always keep noticing the wrong things in the spiritual warfare thing. What you notice is Jesus casting out the demons. Yes, he did that, but that was never his prime agenda. That was always just kind of, it just happened. Yes, he did it because he was soft-hearted and he'd come to destroy the devil. It was like people came to him were sick and he's soft-hearted, he healed them. He cast out demons as well as he healed people. What was his main agenda? Just turn back to Mark chapter 1 with me. All right. Turn back to Mark chapter 1. 
I promise this one isn't coming up on the screen in a minute, so you've got to Mark chapter 1. Okay. What, what was Jesus' main agenda? What had he come to do? Well, look at um, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, or literally preaching the gospel. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. He came preaching the gospel. And so as part of that, he healed people out of compassion. Um, in, um, he cast out the evil spirit who happened to be in the, um, in the synagogue in verses 21 and following. Then he heals Simon's mother-in-law in verses 29 and 31. People know that Jesus can heal. And so as the Sabbath finishes, look at verse 32. Chapter 1, verse 32. That evening after sunset, people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was okay so he healed all and more and more people are coming why because jesus could really heal you want to have a healing ministry go and empty a few hospital wards i guarantee you'll be on the news you'll have more work than you can cope with and that's that people came to jesus why because he could really heal but look at what happens in um, verses 35 to 39 very early in the morning while it was still dark jesus got up left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed um, he had to go out, what we call out into the bush in the dark, to get some, some um, time and space to pray. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone's looking for you. I bet they were. They people lined up for miles to get healed. Jesus replied, and here's the thing to notice, this is Jesus' deliberate uh, priority. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can, what? I can preach there also that is why i've come he came to preach he came to preach the message of what repentance and forgiveness and ultimately because he was a preacher and wouldn't shut up he would end up on the cross but that he'd come to preach the word and you see what happens incidentally verse 39 so he traveled throughout galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons he threw out the demons wherever he encountered them but he didn't go he didn't say i've got to go looking for demons so i've come to preach and the real battle is going on there as well. You see, um, just turn over to chapter 5. What's it all about? It's about blind eyes and closed hearts. Uh, Jesus has just cast the demons out of this man called Legion and they go into the pigs and then run down uh, into the water and drown and so on. And then what happens? Um, verse 14. Right. Chapter 5, verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town, um, in the town and the country, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and they told about the pigs as well. And Jesus was there, and Jesus would have stayed with them for a few days and taught them, spent time with them, told them about himself. Instead, what do they do, verse 17? Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. They asked him to leave. They asked him to leave. And as one commentator said, people have been choosing their pigs ahead of Jesus ever since. Verse 18, the penalty for asking him to leave, he gets in the boat and he leaves. 
Why? Why does it happen? Why is it again and again and again people don't get it? Answer, what's really going on with the devil, where the devil really, where the, the conflict is really sharp, Jesus tells a parable to explain what's going on. Have a look at chapter 4 and the parable of the sower. I'm sure most of you have read this. If you haven't, you, you can do it later. Um, the parable of the sower. The sower goes out, throws out the, the seed. The word of God is spread across the, the different soils. Why is it that so many people just don't get it? Have a look at chapter 4, verse 15. Some people are like seed sown along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, what happens? As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. It's about the work of the devil. And the real battle is for the hearts and minds of people as they hear the word of God. Um, in fact, John can write his whole gospel without one exorcism. In fact, no, no, it's not quite right. There is one casting out of the devil in John, and we'll see tonight what that's all about. But it's not what we usually think of. It, it, John can write his whole thing without any obvious exorcisms or whatever you want to call it. Becoming a Christian is about having your eyes opened to the truth. That's what it's all about. That's where the real spiritual battle is. Don't get, don't get kind of sidetracked by these other things. Um, we'll see. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 3, I'll read it to you beyond the screen. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Why is it that we, if you, if you can see who Jesus is, why is it that you can see that? He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We... Um, we continue to look. If you, the whole spiritual warfare thing, you so easily look in the wrong places. You know, we think about the head spinning around and all that kind of thing. It's not. It's will people hear and understand who Jesus is? And becoming a Christian is to move from one side of one one army, if you like, to the other. To move from darkness to light. It's it's as clear as that. You're moving from darkness to light. When the Lord Jesus stops the Apostle Paul, on the, um, wasn't the Apostle Paul, it was Saul of Tarshish. When the Lord Jesus stopped Saul on his way to Damascus, he was, he was planning to kill Christians. Saul later, who became Paul, says the job description that Jesus gave him. Have a look at this for a job description. Acts 26, verse 17. The Lord Jesus says to Saul, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them, to the Gentiles, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. From darkness to light. Or in Colossians, the Apostle Paul will write, the same Paul who heard Jesus say these things, he says, Colossians 1.13, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So fundamental change, fundamental change. That's what spiritual warfare is all about. You're either in darkness or in light. You either serve the strong man or the stronger man. Can you see that? 
Can you see the knowledge of God in the face of Christ? Can you see that? If you can, thank God, realise you're in a war, pick up your rifle, okay? And we'll find out more about that in the coming talks. Tonight we'll look at how does Jesus destroy the works of the devil? How does Jesus destroy the works of the devil? understand you're going to have Bible study groups this morning. Um, it'll be a wonderful time as you wrestle with this question. When hard things in life come, when real painful difficulties come in your life, who has sent them? Who has sent them? Which stronger man? Which strong? Is it the strong man or the stronger man? Do these difficulties come from the devil or do they come from God? And how can you tell the difference? Will you pray with me? Lord God, we ask please that we may have eyes to see the spiritual battle that our world is in. And we ask please that we may be able to... Or that we ask please that we may all come to see the knowledge of God and forgiveness through Jesus. We pray please that... Um, you give us gratitude and humility and ask please that we may um, be able to see what's going on in our world and have our priorities and our passions in the right place. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.